in the fantasy novel by J.R.R. Tolkien, The Fellowship of the Ring, the elf lord Elrond assembles a team of warriors to accompany the frail Frodo Baggins on an impossible quest journeying to Mordor, the epicenter of evil, in order to destroy the ring of power. And this quest, Lord Elrond acknowledges, would be certainly fraught with danger, with innumerable dark forces stopping at nothing to destroy Frodo and his companions before the ring that gives them power is destroyed. As the assembly of this team of warriors is nearly complete, a young hobbit man named Merodach, who's called Merry, he bursts onto the scene and he insists on joining the team. And just as the team is about to embark on their dangerous mission, Mary asks, right, so where are we going? <laughs> uh, he's absolutely clueless as to what he'd signed up for. Uh, he didn't have a clue how costly the quest that he insisted on joining might be. And something kind of like this takes place in our passage this morning between a Jewish scribe and Jesus, the Son of Man. If you haven't already, I'd invite you to open your Bibles and turn in your Bibles or your scripture journals or devices to Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22 will be our passage. And as we come into this particular passage in Matthew's account of Jesus' life and ministry, Jesus, of course, has just finished preaching his famous Sermon on the Mount, and he's in the middle of like a, like a widespread healing spree. And on account of his marvelous preaching and miraculous healings, large crowds of awestruck Jews are trailing behind him, kind of weighing in their minds whether or not they're going to follow him and how far they're willing to follow him. As we come into verses 18 through 22, about to see... Jesus decides that it's time to cross the Sea of Galilee to go to declare and demonstrate to the Jews on the other side of the pond the long-awaited kingdom of heaven that he had come to reveal. And so I'd invite you to follow along as I read. It's a rather short passage. Matthew 8, verses 18 through 22. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This is the word of the Lord, an intense one. Let's pray for a moment. Father, through your word, we ask that you would instruct our hearts and minds and by your spirit, we ask that you might convict us, conform us, encourage us 
that we might grow deeper in our trust and affection for your Son, our Savior and Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Last Sunday, uh, we began a four-week Advent series entitled, Behold the Son of Man. In this series, we plan to look at four passages from the book of Matthew in which Jesus declares that he is the Son of Man. And the reason we've chosen to focus our Advent series on that name, that title, the Son of Man, was because of its meaning. 450 years before Jesus was born in a stable in Bethlehem, Daniel chapter 7 foretold that one who was like a son of man would arrive from heaven in the likeness of men. And he would arrive in order to redeem and to rescue and to console all God's weary people from every nation and language of earth. Now Jesus Throughout the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus repeatedly claims to be this son of man from Daniel chapter 7. And not only does he claim to be the son of man, his manner of life and death and resurrection, it all makes it inarguably clear he is, he is indeed the divine and human son of man whose arrival has marked the redemption and rescue and consolation of all God's people who are being ushered into a forever kingdom of wholeness and fullness and goodness and glory. This is the essence of the Advent season, isn't it? This is the essence. Now, in fairness, many of our popular Christmas songs and stories and traditions have little to nothing to do with Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. And while I do think it's okay to enjoy some of those things in measure, while it's okay in measure, what greater reason for the season have we? What greater reason have we than to remember the Son of Man has come to celebrate what he has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection, and to anticipate the imminent second advent, the, the time of his second coming, which is, which is soon. And so may we this day, and may we every day of the Advent season, and may we every day of our lives behold Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who is worthy of our undiluted trust and worthy of our undivided affection. If you are a note taker, that's the outline we'll follow for the remainder Uh, of our time. Number one, Jesus is worthy of our undiluted trust. And number two, Jesus is worthy of our undivided affection. Let's look at number one. Jesus is worthy of our undiluted trust. In verses 18 through 20 of our passage, as Jesus is about to cross the Sea of Galilee, to go and declare to the Jews on the other side what he had just declared and demonstrated on this side. And what he was declaring and demonstrating, namely, was that he, he is the Son of Man 
who had come to inaugurate the forever kingdom of heaven that had been foretold centuries prior in Daniel's dream, well, as he's about to cross, as he and his uh, closest disciples are about to cross the Sea of Galilee, a scribe approaches him. Now, the scribes were religious leaders who were closely associated with the Pharisees. In fact, many of the scribes were Pharisees. They were highly educated experts in Mosaic law. And a big part of their job was to meticulously preserve the words of the Old Testament, to copy and recopy and make copies of the Old Testament. In fact, we actually have them to thank for preserving with such stunning accuracy and consistency the words of the Old Testament. We have the Old Testament largely in part because they worked to preserve it. Unfortunately, most of the scribes were also consumed with a desire to be revered and praised by others for their outward devotion to God. And I think this is hinted at in verse 19. As the scribe approaches Jesus, who's about to set sail, the scribe says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. This is a big statement. <laughs> That's a big statement. And it's a statement that proves to be little more than a statement because it seems that the scribe doesn't really back up his words with actions. Now, let me ask you, and I'm kind of looking at that verse 19. Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Let me ask you, um, have you noticed how the majority, the majority of today's popular worship songs are filled with these kinds of statements? Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go because you are my everything. You're my only desire, my only dream, my only passion, my only ambition. I love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I will do anything for you. I think I've just maybe quoted like every popular worship song that's been written in the last two years. <laughs> and th these kinds of triumphal declarations permeate what many churches sing but I don't think that these kind of declarations are helpful because I don't think these kind of declarations set us up for deep reflective self-awareness I'll speak for myself when I say this on my best day even on my best day Jesus is not my only desire He's not my only dream and passion and ambition. Even on my best day, I don't love Jesus as much as he deserves with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Even on my best day, my devotion to Jesus is diluted by my devotion to countless things of this world. Even on my best day, my righteous works, my acts of obedience contain more than trace amounts of prideful self-righteousness and backpatting. Again, I'm going to speak for myself when I say the kinds of songs that I need to be singing are the kind that help me to acknowledge 
I don't have my act altogether. I don't have all my affections in the right place. And my trusting devotion to Jesus is deluded at best. I need to sing songs that remind me of that and then point me to marvelous gospel truths such as that in Matthew 5, 3, when Jesus opens his Sermon on the Mount teaching us that it's those who recognize and admit that they are spiritually bankrupt, it's those people who are pleasing to God and citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's those who, you know, we're not making these triumphal declarations that aren't true, really, when we do soul searching. It's coming to grips with the fact that, God, I fall short on my best day. Save me, a sinner, and thank you for your mercy. In verse 20, after the scribe self-confidently says to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. I'm with you, I'm yours. Jesus responds with a sobering statement. Now notice with me, he doesn't say, wow, my goodness, man, I'm impressed with your zeal. I'm so honored that you want to join my team. He doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus preaches seemingly right at my own heart when he says, foxes and birds, they have places to call their own. But the son of man whom you're so set on following, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, (laughs) just walk that out a little bit with me. The son of man doesn't have a home. He doesn't have a closet, a refrigerator, a 401k. In fact, the son of man doesn't even have a bed. Now, there are a couple of things we need to notice right here. Firstly, Firstly, like that ambitious hobbit named Mary who insisted on joining the fellowship of the ring before he even knew where they were headed or what they were about to do, this scribe doesn't have a clue what he's trying to sign up for. This scribe has not registered that following Jesus, now hear me, following Jesus requires a willingness to part with earthly security and comfort requires a willingness to part with a roof overhead and a pillow underhead if need be. Following Jesus requires a willingness to walk away from the pursuits and pleasures and priorities of this world in order to say, Words that should sound familiar coming from the pen of Paul. Whatever gain I have in this world, I count it as rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. This part of our message, this part of the passage begs a question. And I'll ask you what I'm asking myself. That's the rule. I always have to be asking myself before I ask you. Have you come to terms with the reality that this scribe clearly had not? That following Christ does not guarantee your health, nor success, nor material comfort, nor an emergency stash fund somewhere. Instead, following Jesus does guarantee Opposition, 
insults, you bigot, threats, difficulties. Have you, and I, have you come to terms with the cost of regarding Jesus as the pearl so supremely valuable that you're willing to part with anything to keep hold of it. I believe it was Jim Elliott who posed it this way. And I'll put it into a question. Are you willing to give what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose? The first thing we should notice here in verse 20 is that following Jesus on his terms requires us to trust him with undiluted trust, with unconditional trust, with no asterisks, no footnotes, trust. The second thing we should notice here in verse 20 actually ties directly in with the Advent season, the Advent story. Now, if you can remember with me, back to your junior high literature class, a, which none of us want to do, but we will together for just a second. Junior high literature, oh, what a nightmare. All right, so a motif is a reoccurring theme within a piece of literary work. And right here in verse 20, we see what I like to personally call the manger motif. On the night when the Virgin Mary went into labor, there were no rooms available for she and Joseph at the inn in Bethlehem. Caesar Augustus had decreed that a census be taken. And because all the natives of Bethlehem were in town to register for the census, there was no place but a stable in which Mary could give birth. And so, in a stable, in the likeness of men, Jesus was born. And upon his birth, Mary swaddled him in cloths and laid him in a manger, a feeding trough for the animals in the stable. See with me that the first, from the first day of Jesus' life when he was laid in a manger to the last day of Jesus' life when he was laid in a tomb that belonged to someone else, he never had a place to call his own, ever. The manger motif saturated his whole life. Even foxes have holes. Even birds have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Man, coming from realms of glory, worshipped by countless thousands of angels on the throne of heaven, high and exalted, humbled to become so lowly on earth. I don't know about you, I wouldn't write my own story that way. It should kindle our trust in Jesus all the more that when he calls us, when he invites us to lay down the comforts of this world in order to follow him, he's not calling us to something he hasn't already done himself. Point number one, Jesus is worthy of our undiluted trust. Point number two, 
Jesus is worthy of our undivided affection. In verse 21, immediately following Jesus' interaction with the scribe, another of the disciples, a man who'd probably have been following Jesus from a short distance as Jesus preached and healed many people, another of the disciples said to him, I'm gonna, I'm gonna paraphrase here, Lord, um, before you cross the Sea of Galilee, will you, will you wait here for just a sec? I have some more pressing things that I need to do before I follow you any further. Just hold it here. I need to go and I need to bury my father. Now, it could be, it could be that this man simply wants to give his deceased father a proper, proper burial, but it could also be, as many commentators suppose, that this man right here is putting off following Jesus until he can collect an inheritance from his father who is soon to pass away. There's quite possibly a, a deal that's being sorted out and an inheritance coming his way if he stays put. In either case, whichever case, I think Jesus' response to this man shines a spotlight on how intensely and deliberately we must prioritize our love for him over and above everything else. After the man says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father, Jesus says, no, follow me. Come follow me and let the dead bury the dead. Now, kind of a weird passage for Advent, I know. Uh, at first glance, this response might seem compassionless. I, however, think and would argue that it's chock full of compassion. The man's spiritual walk is clearly being hindered here by his misordered priorities. That's a key word. Misordered priorities. And Jesus is being compassionate in firmly but lovingly revealing to him that, listen to this, even good things become bad things when we allow them to sit on the throne of our hearts where they possess decisive power over our lives. Even good things become bad things when they become ultimate things in our hearts. For this Man, in verse 21, it's honoring uh, his earthly father. We could say this about our relationship with people, with, with jobs, with our reputations, with savings accounts, sports, hobbies, children's activities, vacations, even Christmas traditions. All of these good things can become bad things when we allow them to become ultimate and decide how we will act and think and speak and believe. For this man in 21, and for us, honoring our earthly fathers is a good and right and biblical thing and 
honoring our earthly fathers should be a priority, but we cannot let it compete with the priority. Even as good a thing as earthly fathers can be. And this is a hard one that Lindsay and I have had to walk through in our own lives for the last several years. Even as, as, as good a thing as an earthly father can be, when an earthly father impedes your trust and love and loyalty to Christ, nope, action needs to be taken. Again, the same can be said of your job. Is it impeding? Is it delaying? Is it keeping you? Is it deteriorating so much of your energy that you've nothing left to bring in worship to God and leading of your family, corporate worship and benevolence and cheerfulness and serving and loving neighbors? Man, action might need to be taken. Action might need to be taken because Jesus is either our supreme value or he is not. And on my best day, he's not. But oh, Holy Spirit, help me and help my brothers and sisters who can relate and, and focus our eyes and minds and memories on this, that brother, sister, if you are in Christ, if you repentantly believe, man, this call to worship that Pastor Seth led us through, for this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. If that's you... Oh my goodness, remember and recall what Jesus has come to earth. He came born in a stable on your behalf. He came wrapped in swaddling cloths on your behalf, laid in a manger, lowly and weak, meek and mild on your behalf. He came and he lived the righteous life that you've not and that I've not on your behalf as a fitting substitute so that then he could righteously be our representative that would then be imputed with all of our sin and killed, punished on the cross only to resurrect and say, oh, Father, see my righteous life as theirs. I give it to them by faith. I cleanse them and wash them with my blood. They are mine. I am theirs. We are one. When you open your books and you read through all of the thoughts, actions, attitudes, and words of that person, see the Son of Man. I lived and died and rose in his place, in her place. Oh my goodness. How can we look upon such a gospel message as this and not have our affections kindled for he who is alone worthy. He is so worthy of our undivided affection. I love the fact that in John chapter 21, and we're going to transition into 
a communion, the Lord's Supper, the meal that we share together as saints. I love how in John 21, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? I think there's something really key that Jesus asks him three times to declare his love when Peter had already denied him three times. Man, I'm Peter the denier, and yet at the same time, what opportunity is even better than when we come forward to the Lord's table to enjoy the body and blood of Jesus symbolizing the bread and the cup to come forward with the repentant, humble, yet joyous answer of the apostle Peter. Yes, Lord, I've not demonstrated it at all well but I do love you. I do love you. In fact, Holy Spirit, kindle my affections all the more for, for, for Jesus, the Son of Man. Kindle my trust for him that I would be willing to be parted with the things of this earth because of he who I have and behold forever. What a wonderful opportunity as we are coming forward to remember the body and blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross to bring us into his forever family. What an awesome opportunity. And so that would be the invitation that if you are a professing believer, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, crucified and resurrected to pay for sin then you are welcome to come forward to the table. But I would add this caveat. Are you capable of the kind of function that, that, that is required in the church? And this is one of the reasons why we, we encourage parents with younger kids to wait to give the Lord's Supper to their children. We want them to grow in their profession, faith in Christ, but also to grow in demonstration of the fruitfulness of conversion, that the Holy Spirit is alive and well and working in them. If that is you, brother or sister, men, women, if that is you, I would invite you, after I pray, to come forward to take of the bread and the cup, this sensory meal, which is to remind us as we taste the bread and as we drink the juice to remind us of the actual body of Jesus that was broken on the cross for us to pay for us and the blood that was shed to wash us and to bring us before the Father with complete and perfect righteousness. This is an amazing celebratory meal and one that I will now pray. Um, and I would also invite our communion servers while I pray to come forward. And I would also invite you as well to, to come and, and lead us in a song. Um, if you are not, uh, by repentant faith, one with Christ, I would encourage you, I would, I would ask that you refrain from taking the Lord's Supper. Instead, that you would believe this good news that Jesus, on your behalf, in your place, has lived and died and rose to save you. Put your trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Man, it is convicting and comforting all at the same time as it should be. Lord, I pray collectively that you would forgive us for 
how diluted our trust is and how divided our affection is for you so often that, Lord, you might lead us in our thinking to specific things that are vying for the throne of our hearts and that we would have the, the courage to lay those things on the altar of our hearts and to sacrifice them to you prayerfully, repentantly, that you, Jesus, might wear the crown and that your doing so would lead us to believe rightly what your word says, to do and to speak and to live rightly according to what your word says in the wondrous grace that you have lavished upon us as your people. We thank you, Jesus, for your work on the cross. We thank you that, that you, the undeserving, became our sin and died in our place and rose to life so that we, the undeserving, would experience life and life to the full. We thank you for this gospel meal we're about to participate in. Be glorified, Lord, as we are edified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.